this episode of the ESG Beat, we will speak with Josh Zinner, the CEO of the Interfaith Center for Corporate Responsibility. ICCR's coalition of over 300 global institutional investors currently represents more than $500 billion of managed assets. Currently celebrating its 49th year, ICCR invests through the lens of faith and pioneered the use of shareholder advocacy to further social and environmental justice. Examples include fighting against apartheid in South Africa and addressing racial injustice and income inequality today. Josh will help us to understand the convergence of ESG investing and faith investing, but he will also delineate important differences between the two approaches. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Josh. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So ICCR pioneered faith-based investing many decades ago. Let's just begin with a brief account of that history. Uh, Can you tell us about the faith-based investment movement? Yeah, so ICCR really began uh, in the early 70s when a group of faith investors began engaging with companies doing business in apartheid South Africa. And really through that process, pioneered uh, not just faith-based investing, but really pioneered the strategy of of shareholder engagement on environmental and social issues. That was really the beginning, long before there was an ESG movement. So let's talk about the ESG movement, uh, given that this is the ESG beat after all. And um, I'd like to discuss the similarities and the differences between faith-based investing and ESG. There's clearly been a convergence between the two, um, as we've discussed, but can you delineate um, some of the differences in your response as well? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think a key difference really is that the conversation starts with really the impact of, of corporate practices on people and communities and on the planet. That's the starting point for the conversation. That will lead naturally to the business case that's not where faith investors will start. So they'll, they'll make a case based on moral and ethical implications of practices. So if a company has forced labor in its supply chain, it really the conversation really starts with why that's ethically problematic and how. Uh, and then that leads naturally to questions of reputational risk and legal risk and financial risk. So there's a strong business case there as well. But again, the focus from, from the start is on, on impact on people. And I think with ESG, the starting point is, is company value. And it may lead to the same place, but the character of that conversation is very different. I think the biggest similarity, and this is where really the, the faith investment and ESG are, are really have a lot of the same goals, is really that both take a long-term approach. So both ESG investing and, and faith investing, there's a strong belief that companies that are engaging and committed to key stakeholders like workers, communities where they do business, consumers and others, are companies that are really setting themselves up for the long-term and building long-term sustainable business model. And that companies that are taking shortcuts, imposing externalities, focused on short-term profit are are not companies that are built for the long-term. So I think that's where there's a real convergence uh, between the two. And that's why a lot of the conversations are um, similar. So that makes a lot of sense. And I kind of want to bring us to the present moment, uh, the COVID-19 era. Um, So in the bull market, it seems like there was more convergence between faith-based investing and ESG. And now the trade-offs are exposed, right? So companies have to make trade-offs between value and values. Do you see 
more convergence between faith-based investing and ESG in this era or less, or um, how do you, how do you see that? Yeah, I, I, I think there's, there's more the potential really for much more convergence. And I think what's significant, obviously it's there, you know, we have some really hard times ahead. I think what's clear is this systemic uh, risk, the risk to the system from from the COVID ec- epidemic and and from widespread racial discrimination is 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 becoming more and more evident, both to investors and to companies. And so I see a couple of trends which I think will help build a, a stronger case for the type of issues that ICCR members have been pressing companies on for so many years. For one. I think there's always been this tension about, well, we can make the case for materiality on, on environmental issues, but on social issues, you know, the data isn't there. And I think now it's become quite clear that how a company treats and manages its workforce is material. Uh, and so I think there's a, a growing understanding that the, the S issues in ESG are, are material uh, and that's going to help build momentum for so many of the issues that that, that ICCR members and, and our allies have worked on for so long. The second, I think, is that there's a growing understanding uh, among, again, amongst more mainstream investors and companies that 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 companies have to investors and companies have to reckon with systemic risk. You know, in the past, if you were talking to a company about tax avoidance or living wage the company would make the argument well it's it's not good for our profits and most shareholders would would agree you know if we're if we're saving money on taxes isn't that great we can pay more dividends but i think now investors there's a broader understanding that first of all investors are invested uh you know across the markets and second of all investors are committed the value of their investments is tied up in in the economy overall and that's the same for the long term value of companies is really tied up in a, in a strong economy and if infrastructure is crumbling or if income inequality is exploding through the roof uh, or if drug prices are too high so that people can't access essential medicines it affects the whole system and it it affects the the economy overall and that's not a good environment for investors or companies and i think that understanding given the 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 whole covid situation uh, is is really um, sinking in and i think it has the potential to change a lot of these conversations uh, with companies in the future by driving more mainstream investors towards the types of conversations that ICCR members and, and others have had with companies for many years. So that's really interesting. And um, ironically, it gives me a lot of hope because what I hear you saying is that the systemic risks that ICCR and faith-based investors have recognized for a long time are becoming apparent in the COVID era because it has highlighted the interconnectedness of different companies, the interconnectedness of our markets, the interconnectedness of our investment system. So the externalities of one business cannot be borne by another business because that will impact investors and indeed the entire market. Exactly, yep. Do you see that recognition being played out in engagement with individual companies? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a process, um, and I, you know, I think right now we're working with a broad group of investors. So we, we, uh, uh, you know, in March, soon after the the whole COVID thing exploded, uh, we got together with allies and we put out a, a an investor statement on coronavirus response, and 
it was laying out some principles for companies around paid leave, around worker health and safety, supply chain management, uh, ethical financial management during the crisis. And essentially, it was a framework for investors to push companies on COVID response. And there was almost 10 trillion in investor assets under management that signed on globally. And I think a lot of the investors in this coalition are now, we're now talking about what's the next step. So, uh, you know, the first step is, is what are companies doing immediately in the COVID era, but, but what now are companies going to be doing as we turn around and try and build back uh, the economy after, you know, after the COVID crisis. And I think those issues that you just talked about, the interconnected issues that really impact all companies and all investors, I think are at the top of the list. So, so I think we're going to be seeing, uh, certainly amongst ICCR members, but amongst many of our allies, and we're in a lot of conversations, I think a shift in these conversations with companies, but it's a, it, it, I think it will take time. Um, but I think I, I, I do think that the COVID situation is really laid bare. I think what a lot of people have been saying for a long time, which is that in the big mainstream investors and the companies have to reckon with this. You know, it's not about the short term. You know, living wage, a company might save money by underpaying their workforce, but if, if they're contributing to income inequality, it's going to create economic instability. And companies have to, and investors have to understand that that's systemic. That's, that's really interesting. So you said um, that you put out a statement with an investor group representing how many trillion? Uh, almost 10 trillion in assets under management. And so this was with ICCR put this out with Domini Impact Investments and the New York City Comptroller. And then we circulated it globally and there was, there, there was a, a huge amount of investor sign on. Clearly, investors globally are very concerned about the way that companies are responding to the COVID crisis, and that's at the top of the agenda in virtually all of the engagements right now. So the question then is, what is the next step as we pivot from the COVID emergency? Is it okay if, if you know, if we're telling companies that you have to provide paid leave, and that that's not that's for the good of your workers, but also for the good of society, for for you know, for public health reasons? Then what happens when COVID's gone? Well. Are, are, we're still going to be telling you as investors that paid leave is essential for a solid economy. So um, we have to pivot those discussions from what do companies do in, in the uh, emergency to what, what are, how are companies going to learn from this uh, and, in, and put in long-term long policies and practices that will create more sustainability in the economy as a whole. And how does that initiative relate to um, the work that's being done by the Investor Alliance for Human Rights? Yeah, so the Investor Alliance for Human Rights is an, it's an initiative of ICCR, and it was really set up to educate investors and build out a broad group of investors that were reckoning with their own responsibility to respect human rights and that were also pushing companies on the corporate responsibility to respect human rights. And this comes out of the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, a relatively new set of standards from 2011 that again give through, through those standards, companies have that responsibility to respect human rights in their operations and supply chains. And there's as a corollary, so, so do investors. And so there's a process through the UNGP, a human rights due diligence process where companies are managing uh, human rights risks. And the idea there, um, in that process is really to assess um, the salient human rights impacts for companies and to integrate the findings to, to, to then track and measure them and then to communicate publicly 
those steps. So it's a process. And what's, what's interesting about this process is we're really trying to, through the Investor Alliance for Human Rights, is to really drive human rights due diligence as a process into core corporate governance. So human rights concerns, whether it's uh, workers' rights or free prior and informed consent around uh, corporate uh, impacts on communities or whatever the issue might be, uh, human rights defenders, um, discrimination, hate speech, whatever the issue is, um, that, that companies were always dealing with that in the corporate social responsibility side of the business as a PR problem. And the idea with human rights due diligence and, and the Investor Alliance is to drive human rights due diligence into core corporate governance uh, so that it's, it's, it's sitting in the C-suite with companies. And so that's, that's the big idea there. It's a really important piece of that um, is a corollary of investor responsibility. And so um, through the Alliance, we've produced an investor toolkit for human rights. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a guidance document to help investors understand that responsibility and to provide for them tools to try and guidance to try and fulfill that. So that investors, it, you know, it's important to understand that it, investors should be engaging with companies about their human rights risks, but also need to reckon internally with uh, the investor own contribution to, to uh, or own human rights risks in their portfolio across their investments. And shareholder engagement is certainly one big way uh, in the public equity market to, to, to address those risks. So with respect to uh, bringing human rights into the C-suite and making it a core part of corporate governance as opposed to a CSR function or a PR function, can you give us an example of that, a concrete example of a company that you've engaged with that has really um, brought human rights into the C-suite? Well, I would say I, it, it's hard to give an example of a company that's fully done that. I, it, you know, it's very much of a process. And I think what's interesting about the UN guiding principles are less than a decade old, um, but they're, they're gaining a lot of credibility uh, and uh, and companies are understanding that they have to reckon with them. Uh, and so it's a, it, it's a process for companies. So some companies have adopted human rights policies uh, and you know, some of them are very weak. Some of them are, are, are much more tied to the, to the UN guiding principles. And then that's a first step. And then you know, some companies are, are, are doing impact assessments of salient human rights risks. And that's also a very important piece of the puzzle um, an important piece of that impact assessment is engaging with key stakeholders, um, but, it, but it's a process. So there's no model company to hold up. But one thing that's heartening is that those, converse, those, those conversations with companies are, 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 have an elevated importance. And, uh, and, and companies are recognizing, in fact, that these are business risks. In other words, I mean, one, one interesting thing about the, um, these conversations, the UNGPs and human rights and the convergence with faith investing is that the, 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 it's about saliency, right? So what, what the conver this conversation starter around human rights is what are your salient human rights impacts on people and communities? And so also within the UNGP framework, that conversation starts with um, impacts on people uh, just, as, just as it does with those original conversations that, that faith investors are having with companies. So there's a real convergence there. 
but it also but it also converges into business risk. And so more and more companies are understanding that seriously addressing salient human rights impacts is good for business, that it mitigates risk, that it allows companies to get out ahead of these problems instead of reacting to them. Um, and so we are seeing more and more traction on that. Okay, so we touched upon engagement, which is something that I'm really interested in, and I'm very interested in particular uh, in your approach, which emphasizes dialogue. Now, dialogue has been widely criticized as, you know, being just words and not meaningful and, you know, talk is cheap. Can you tell us why you believe dialogue is impactful? The whole engagement process is about dialogue, but it's a very different strategy for each company, right? So our, our members are in dialogue with hundreds of companies each year about a, a broad range of, of ESG topics. Um, and, and so dialogue is really about sitting down with companies and, and asking companies to make commitments, whatever it might be, a 1.5 degree scenario planning or a human rights due diligence process or, or eliminating forced labor from the supply chain or whatever the issue might be. And if we're able to work with companies productively through dialogue, that's the process that we'll engage in. When we're not able to move companies through dialogue, our members file shareholder resolutions. So that's a way of ratcheting up the pressure with companies. So the ICTCR members filed uh, 281 shareholder resolutions in the 2020 proxy season across a very broad range of, of ESG topics. And so it's a very active membership. And so dialogue is, is the key, but shareholder resolutions are the tool to, to get companies to move forward in dialogue. So what the resolutions do is they really highlight the issue before boards and and management and other shareholders. They allow for media opportunities. They put pressure. And so, when resolutions are filed, sometimes sometimes companies will agree to uh, commitments in exchange for withdrawing the resolution. So we had ICCR members over a hundred of those resolutions that were filed. In fact, 113 led to commitments, withdrawals, and commitments with companies. Other times a significant vote at a shareholder meeting on a resolution will push the company back to the table to move forward on these issues. And then we're back into dialogue. So dialogue by itself without the resolution process, it, it, it mostly is not a strong enough tool, but it's this engagement as a whole with dialogue, with filing of resolutions. It's a sort of a push and pull back and forth. And you know, with some companies, we have to become a lot more aggressive with media and with with filing of resolutions. With other companies, we can move forward through dialogue because they have people internally that understand the importance of these issues. It really, it varies so much by sector, by company, but it all comes back to dialogue in that at the end of the day, we need to be sitting at the table as investors talking to companies. We do need these tools to be able to put pressure on them or else the dialogue won't bear fruit often. So I have two questions about the shareholder proposals. One is, can you give our audience a sense of the types of proposals that you filed and that you've been successful on? And by successful, I mean that either they've been withdrawn because there's been a commitment by the company or there's been a successful vote because I haven't only been impressed with the number, but I've been really impressed with the success of your shareholder proposals over the past couple of years. 
Yeah, sure. So, I mean, success can be measured in a number of ways. Um, high votes are successful in that they create pressure on companies for change, um, but, but sometimes they don't do enough. So, for example, we filed resolutions, gun safety resolutions, our members um, last year with Smith Wesson and Sturm Ruger. We got uh, on on um, on the Sturm Ruger resolution um, upward of sixty percent, which is a for a gun safety resolution and a gun manufacturer is really really significant. And we got majority votes on both of those, but because those companies are so difficult to engage on that topic, um, it 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 didn't. It, we haven't. You know, we're still on the road in moving those companies forward. So sometimes you can get a high vote and it's a success, but it's not necessarily leading to uh, to changing that company's practices, but um, but high shareholder votes are, are are really a bellwether for the most part for getting companies to move. Uh, this year, you know, in terms of the topics, our members filed over fifty resolutions on on human rights and the human rights due diligence process, nearly as many around climate, um, and, and another big topic was lobbying and and political spending, where we're working with. Uh, with allies from various organizations to really push companies on transparency in their lobbying and political spending. And we got a number of high votes in all of those areas, including, uh, I believe, it, um, at least nine majority votes this year, which is so, so the, the, the numbers are going up and up. Um, and we had a, a huge percentage, I don't have the number um, at my fingertips, of, of votes o over 25%, which is a significant vote usually kind of a marker in whether we can, uh, you know, often get companies to the table. So a huge percentage of, of higher votes on these ESG issues. So one thing that's certain is that investor support for these issues is going up. Um, and I think that will help to put pressure on these companies to really uh, look at, at these issues in a serious way. Um, and then again, uh, you know, in terms of success, we, we really measure that by whether we can move companies forward on certain issues. Uh, and um, and our members were able to get in this proxy season by our measurement, as I said before, about 113 of those. Uh, you know, some, some of the commitments can be really significant. Others are a commitment to move forward on an issue that we've stuck about. But some, some examples are Johnson & Johnson integrating drug pricing risk into executive compensation. Um, Western Union agreeing to end its relationship with the Burmese military-owned bank. Um, Amazon uh, agreeing to board oversight of ESG risks of its third-party sellers. Those are those are some examples of the types of resolutions. A whole a whole host of commitments on climate, um, and a whole host of commitments on on um, uh, diversity and in inclusion. In fact, uh, you know, one example: Rogers Corporation adopting a fully inclusive EEO policy including sexual orientation and gender identity. So there, there's a, a whole range of, of topics and across sectors where members have gotten commitments from companies uh, in exchange for the withdrawal of resolutions. And, and, and we, we, we see that ultimately as the measure of success as to whether we can move these companies uh, forward uh, on the broad range of issues that we engage them on. That's extraordinary and in particular uh, the reason why it piques my interest as somebody who studies corporate governance and tries to delineate between what's, you know, greenwashing and what's meaningful governance change, executive compensation and board oversight is about as 
traditional, you know, corporate governance as you can get. Um, and to have companies align their executive compensation with ESG targets, um, you know, that's really meaningful. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, one thing I would say also, you know, I, I, what I didn't mention, I, I mentioned earlier lobbying and political spending, but there, there were a huge number of commitments in that area. And we see that as really fundamentally about democracy. Um, that, you know, that cuts across everything that we work on. So we're, we're really, we have some really strong partners in that Center for Political Accountability and Tim Smith and John Keenan, who, who many of your listeners might know. Um, and, and they've done some extraordinary work and our members are really committed to, to that. And, and those are really important uh, governance issues that really cut across. So you've been doing some work in the engagement space and the shareholder uh, proposal um, space for some time on di both diversity and inclusion and income inequality. Um, can you talk about that work in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement? I, absolutely. I, our, our members have been engaging with companies for for years on 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 issues that relate to racial justice, whether it's diversity and inclusion, uh, whether it's it's health and safety of workers in meatpacking plants, whether it's fair chance hiring of formerly incarcerated, uh, whether it's uh, financing bank financing of private prisons. Uh, so we've been engaging uh, on, on these issues for, for for some time. We came out with uh, allies in the racial Justice Investing Coalition last month with an investor statement of solidarity and call of action to investors to address systemic racism. Uh, and there's now over uh, 130 um, endorsers of that statement. And so we're really trying to focus uh, in this effort on in investor commitment, um, where we're asking our, our members and, and, and the broader investor community uh, through the Racial Justice Investing Coalition to really to, 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 uh, to commit to a set of standards, including to actively engage with and amplifying black voices and investor spaces to embed racial equity and justice lens into our own organizations, uh, into our own investment decision-making and engagement strategies. Um, it's, about, it's around reinvesting in communities and using the investor voice in public policy to advance uh, anti-racist policies. So we're really trying to use this statement as a call to action to the investor community, both to use uh, their in, in, uh, engagement strategies to address racial justice, but also to look internally in their own processes, uh, in their own investment strategies uh, to, to, to commit to address uh, racial justice. What's been your experience so far, and I know that it's early days with respect to engaging with companies on racial justice um, in the past few weeks? Well, it's early on. I think we see a lot of companies that are making statements in support of Black Lives Matter, which is encouraging, but it's really important that companies ultimately are committing to policies and practices that are consistent with the movement for racial justice. And that includes not just making statements, um, but also in the way that they treat their workforces, um, which is really critical around living wage, around worker health and safety, around paid leave. Um, so it's really fundamentally about, and, and I would say very much about the way that companies are engaging in, in public policy. 
so companies that are are are, are pushing back against fin financial rules that protect low-income people or, or labor rules that labor rules that protect low-income workers you know if they're saying they support black lives matter and then they're pushing for regressive policy in washington um that that's obviously inconsistent so i think we're going to look at what companies do in the long term, and we welcome the, the, the commitments that companies are making. But I think um, just as we're going to be pushing ourselves as investors, we're going to be pushing companies to, to walk the walk. And um, a big part of that is, is how they uh, treat their workforce and how they engage on public policy. Well, thank you for that. Um, Along those lines, given that it is early days, I always like to end the ESG beat by giving our guests a magic wand and a crystal ball. So let's start with a magic wand. If, if you could wave your wand and change something to accelerate the pace of values-based investing, what would that be? Well, look, first and foremost, we need a new public policy regime um, so I think, you know, we can, we can engage in the, with companies and we can do ESG investing, but if we have a regressive policy environment, um, we're, you know, we're always, um, you know, swimming upstream on that. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we're not a political organization, but I think, you know, under the current administration, a, a lot of the issues that we've worked on for so many years, there, there's been a, a, a you know, a real um, uh, step backward on so many of these issues around climate, around, um, around banking, around labor, around health. Uh, and so I think first and foremost, to, to, to move, for the movement to move forward, we need a, a, a shift in policy in Washington and we need a, a movement nationally uh, that helps to put in place more progressive uh, policies on the issues in which we engage. And I think there is some momentum on these issues as I, as I talked about earlier for investors, but to make real progress, I think we're gonna need policy to be going in the, in the same direction. And I think if that's the case, there's, there's a chance to really move things forward. If not transformational change, certainly um, to make uh, you know, giant strides from where we are now. What's one policy that you would change if you could change it? Well, I think you, you just just to restore some of what was uh, lost in this last administration. So the Clean Power Plan was scrapped, uh, the CAFE standards, you know, on the environmental side, um, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which which came out of Dodd Frank. I was on their advisory board for a number of years, and um, uh, they did a lot of really one of the best things to come out of Dodd Frank is you know and and put some really strong rules in around payday lending, around arbitration, mandatory arbitration, and a whole bunch of areas, and, and those have all been scrapped. You know, so there's, there's a lot of areas where, as ICCR members have been engaging companies for a long time where we're, we're backslipping. And now, of course, we're seeing also um, uh, policy challenges to our very strategy of engagement. So the SEC has put in uh, place a proposed rule that would make it much harder for shareholders to file resolutions. And now the Department of Labor is put in a proposed rule that would make it very difficult to do ESG investing. So it's, you know, across the board, um, we're, you know, we're, we're, we have to push back against these, these uh, you know, re this regressive policy. And I think as that changes, I think we'll be able to get more momentum here if that changes. 
So if that changes brings us to the crystal ball, where do you see us headed? Yeah, well, it's impossible to have a political crystal ball these days, so I won't even try. Um, but I will, you know, on the investor side, I will say that regardless of, of a, the difficult policy environment or a more favorable one, I think, I, you know, I, I said earlier, I do see a lot of investor momentum towards uh, pushing companies in a bolder direction in these engagements. Shareholder engagement, by definition, is incremental. It's not systems change. Um, and we recognize that, but also when we can move big companies, you know, when, when, when you can get Walmart to, to, to work to address uh, forced labor and its supply chain and has one of the biggest supply chains in the world, that, that can be progress, even as Walmart has many other issues. Um, and so, you know, we, we recognize that even these incremental changes can impact people's lives in very positive ways. And I think that um, if we can move companies um, if we can sort of rebound from this COVID environment to push companies more aggressively uh, in some of these important areas like living wage, like tax avoidance, like in, in lobbying and political spending, uh, and the way that they engage in public policy, these are these big systemic issues that are, are creating a difficult economic environment. And if we can shift some of these big companies ever so slightly, uh, it, it's a big contribution I think that investors can make. Thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing your insights. And I look forward to following your work. And I hope that um, it, many of the initiatives that you've put in place over the past few weeks come to fruition and have great impact as so many uh, initiatives that ICCR has spearheaded uh, for the past few decades. Thanks, Amelia. I really appreciate it. It was great talking with you. We look forward to further conversations. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.